If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 3. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying what it means to follow Jesus. And we talked about last week, the question we're really going to ask is whether or not you're a fan or a follower of Jesus. Whether you're someone that's enthusiastically admiring Him, or whether you're someone that has committed your entire life to following Him. And uh, I wanted to start this morning with, with talking about um, a couple of business success stories from the last uh, few years. In 2004, there was a guy that was uh, messing around with some software stuff in a dorm room at Harvard. And he decided it would be nice if you could come up with something that would give everybody at Harvard a way to interact and see other people. And so he, in his room one day, he uh, developed, with the help of some friends, software that became known as Facebook. His name's Mark Zuckerberg. He famously dropped out of Harvard, went to Palo Alto, started this company, it's a little bit um, of a crazy story. It was actually turned into a Hollywood movie. Some of you may have seen a couple of years ago. and The movie didn't get it all right, but they got a lot of it right. And Zuckerberg just had this vision that people wanted to communicate with one another, wanted to see things about each other. And so he created this thing called Facebook. Well, as of a couple of months ago, Facebook has now 845 million active users. 845 million active users. How many of you are on Facebook? All right? It's most of us in the room are on it in some way, all right? So 845 million. That's remarkable growth to think that it went from one person in a dorm room in 2004 to eight years later, it's close to a billion people that are there. In fact, in a single month, 140 million Americans, unique users, will go and use Facebook. 140 million different Americans. Now, does anybody know how many Americans there are? How many people live in America? About 300 million. And so if you just take those numbers, you don't have to be, you know, real swift in math. If you just take those numbers, you realize that almost one out of every two living Americans goes on Facebook in a month's time. It's pretty remarkable. What's more remarkable to me is the business that has developed. It started by a guy and some friends in a dorm room in 2004. Three years later, Microsoft decided they wanted to buy a small part of the company. So they bought 1.6% of the company for $240 million. $240 million, which valued, I know that you can do 1.6%, figured out what that is, that valued the company at $15 billion in three years. 2012, they announced earlier this year they're going to offer an IPO where you can buy stock in Facebook. And they, when they do that, they get all these people to kind of give bids on what they think it will be worth. And through those bidding processes, it came out to be the most valuable company ever offered in an IPO when it comes available soon. They value the company then at around $94 billion. Billion. That's a lot of money, right? Apparently not. You're not reacting in any way. 
Maybe 94 billion is not a lot of money to you, but 94 billion is a lot of money to me. All right. So it's this world. In fact, Facebook is so rich right now. They bought a company this week that was 18 months old with 13 employees for one billion dollars. When you've got that kind of money to throw around, you're rich. All right. Amazing success story. And the reason it's a success story is because it allows people from all over the world to interact with each other together. Now, a couple of years later, uh, a group of guys were sitting around in a room and they said, you know, Facebook's a good thing and it was kind of growing, but there's some, there's some people that don't want everybody to see every picture they've ever taken. And they don't care about relationship statuses. And they don't care about uh, next month's events. They just want to give a short statement to people. And so these guys around the table started developing something they called TWTR. Now, eventually they lengthened the name to Twitter because they found this word meant that it was a short burst of inconsequential information. Now, they haven't been quite as successful. At this moment... Six years after they were founded, they are only worth $7 billion. So it's a little bit of a failure, basically. Now, here's the thing that's about Twitter that's different. I mean, you saw some of this in the video, which is based on the idea of what if Jesus were on Twitter. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the idea on Twitter is you can have access to almost anybody in the world that's on Twitter and just follow them. Most people don't make you, don't make you uh, get blessed to follow them or say, hey, I'm going to approve you to follow. You can just follow. And so celebrities, um, normal people can have people following them that they don't even know or care about, but they can hear every word that they do. In fact, I, I went on this week to find out the most followed people on Twitter. Anybody have an idea who the number one is? Lady Gaga, Randy Brooks on the Twitter. He is our Twitter insider right there. It don't even, Randy doesn't even have a Facebook. Um, Randy is right. Lady Gaga, 22.8 million people follow Lady Gaga. Anybody know who number two is? Justin Bieber. The Brooks family is in touch with Twitter. All right. Justin Bieber is just a little bit behind at 20.2 million. Number three is Katy Perry at 17.8 million. Apparently, you have to be a singer to be on this list. You get a little farther down, and then you have the President of the United States. Barack Obama's on there at 14.2 million. Taylor Swift is on there at 12.9 million. And I bet our people that went to Brazil last year didn't realize you were on a plane with one of the top ten people on Twitter. Soccer player Kaká from Brazil, has 9.75 million followers. And your pastor, 268 pastor on Twitter, has 331. Woo! It's about the same. Hey, here's what I I just, I, I felt, you know, when you read all these numbers, you're like, goodness gracious, that's ridiculous. And then you realize the average Twitter user has about 120 followers. So I'm almost three times the national average. That's how important I am. You all didn't realize that, did you? Um, 
so here's the thing. I, I was thinking about all this stuff. What, what about you saying, what, what's the deal with Facebook and Twitter? Here, here's the, I, I got to thinking, you know, today there are people that you pay that help you to grow your online social networking presence. In fact, there are conferences for pastors about how to grow your church's online social networking presence. There are books out there about how to do that. There are people that you can pay that will guarantee they will raise the number of your followers or the people on their your fans on Facebook to a certain amount. And I got to think, well, how would Jesus handle social networking? I mean... It seems a strange question because it's so far removed from where he was. But in some ways, if you consider going viral, word spreading rapidly and crowds beginning to develop, in some ways Jesus was going viral in his day and time. I mean, we just were reminded and we talked about last week how that he had crowds of over 5,000 people, up to 10,000, 15,000 people surrounding him to hear him preach. When people were getting off work and leaving and going to all kinds of places, and we found out last week the way he often handled that was not by saying, hey, 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 wait, wait, let me say some more stuff to get more followers. What did he do? He ran them off. He taught hard teaching then. One of the things that I think is interesting about Jesus as you read uh, the New Testament over and over is when Jesus had the opportunity to add people, he always made sure they understood what they were getting themselves into. He always made sure that people understood that a commitment to Jesus was not just a passing kind of thing. It was a lifetime of commitment. In John chapter 3, we have one such incident. We talked last week about uh, sometimes in relationships you have to have the, the DTR, the define the relationship kind of talk. And, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at different places that Jesus kind of has that talk with people and says, you've got to figure out who you are and what you want to do. And today we're going to talk about John chapter 3. And one of the things that, that we may not even get to the most well-known verse in all of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the most well-known verse is John 3. 16, right? I was watching a ball game this weekend and somebody was holding up the John 3.16 sign. We may not even get there. We may, or if we do, it'll be the very last thing and we'll kind of fly by. What often happens in this passage is people rush to that to talk about the universal nature of salvation, which is true, but they forget the conversation in which that is found. And I want to talk today about a guy who was asking the question of what it meant to follow Jesus. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I'll tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus says, how can that happen? I mean, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born 
of the Spirit. Nicodemus says, well, well, how can this be? You are Israel's teachers and you don't even understand these things, Jesus says. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then you will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Here's what I want you to get today. It's really just one main point, all right? Just one main thing I want you to think about, and it is this. That a commitment to Jesus, following Jesus, means allowing him to turn your world upside down. Following Jesus means allowing him to turn your world upside down. Now, most people, when it comes to following Jesus, don't think that that's what's required. In fact, we talked last week about the distinction between fans and followers. And most fans of Jesus are happy to follow as long as it doesn't require significant changes or have negative implications on their lives. That's what Nicodemus wanted. When did Nicodemus come to see Jesus? He came when? At night, right? People know that. That's why there's even a TV station that has special programming called Nick at Night. Because it resonates there, right? Nicodemus came at night. Why would he come at night? So nobody would know he was there. Right? He wanted to sneak in. He wanted to find his way to Jesus when nobody else would know he was there. He wanted to investigate Jesus without it affecting his life. He was hoping that he'd be able to follow Jesus from a distance, but not allow it to affect who he was. What does it say Nicodemus did? Well, it says here he was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and apparently he was a guy that was well known in that. Now, my guess is that Nicodemus in some ways is brave here and in some ways is cowardly. My guess is there was a little group of people in the Pharisees, in the ruling council, having discussions about Jesus. The most part, everybody's like, oh, we don't like this guy, there's something wrong with this guy. But my guess is there was a group of people that kind of said, you know what, I, I think we need to see about him. And Nicodemus said, I'll go ask. I'll go talk. But he sneaks in at night and he basically says... Okay, we know you're a teacher. The implication is, now, now how do we kind of believe your teaching, but not make a big deal about it? How do we say that we think you're right, and maybe we can cause some change in the country, but, but let's do it at a pace that we all kind of like, and we bring others along, and we don't lose any kind of status here. And Jesus doesn't waste any time telling Nicodemus, if he has any thoughts about keeping what he's got and following Jesus, it's not going to work. First thing he tells him is, you can't be a follower of Jesus. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you do what? Unless you're born again, right? Now, all, most of us in this room who grew up in church or around church or around the South, I mean, oh, born again, they're talking about Christian stuff there. But again, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of Nicodemus, who this is the first time he's had this conversation. He's never heard those words. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus starts laughing and go, how in the world is that going to happen? And Jesus is basically saying, it means a brand 
new life. Now, if you just look at Nicodemus from the outside, he looks like he's got a pretty good life carved out for himself already. I mean, he's got a position there. I mean, he's in the Pharisees, which were the kind of pious people. They were well-respected. People looked at him and said, oh, he's a Pharisee. Anytime a title comes immediately after your name, it means that you have some kind of position. He had some popularity. A member of the Pharisees, of the ruling council, would have been somebody that people would have aspired to be. You don't get there unless you know some people. It would have been a good place. He had some prestige because he was a part of this ruling council. And if he was a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council, he would have been living his life the best he could in order to live by the laws God had placed down. So he had some religious aspect. And Jesus basically says to him, your position, your popularity, your prestige and your piety mean nothing. Who you are, where you came from, how often you go to church, who your grandparents were, what you do for a living means nothing. You've got to have a whole new life. Now what's interesting is Scriptures don't tell us Nicodemus' decision here. Right? It doesn't tell us that he went, oh, you're right, Jesus, I'm going to follow. It just kind of leaves it hanging. And if it were the only time in Scripture that we saw Nicodemus, it might make us wonder whatever happened to him. But you know what? He shows up again in the book of John. Anybody know where he shows up again? It's actually two places. He shows up right after the crucifixion. We'll get there in a minute, Miss Joan. And he shows up again in John chapter 7. When some people on a mission to arrest Jesus don't arrest him. And they come back to Nicodemus' group and they say around there, listen, we just couldn't arrest him. And they say, well, why didn't you arrest him? And the guy basically says, because we kind of believe him. And Nicodemus sees this as his opportunity. It tells us that he has some feelings for Jesus or he's got some commitment to Jesus or that at least he's been thinking about it because he takes the opportunity and he says, hey, wait a minute, guys, why are we arresting him? How can we arrest somebody that's done absolutely nothing wrong? And you know what happens to Nicodemus? They cut him down to size real quickly. In John chapter 7, what it says is that someone says to him, Hey, aren't you from Galilee? Now, that doesn't sound like an insult to us. But that was an insult back then. People from Galilee were people that weren't very smart. In fact, one of the things he says is, Aren't you from Galilee? There has never even been a prophet from Galilee. It would be like somebody, and I'm just hypothetical here, listening to your accent and saying, Aren't you from the South? That, that, that's, that's awfully sweet of you to think that, but you're just from down there where they don't, they don't have any good IQs. You know, I mean, you, you've all, if you've got, if you're from the South, how many from the South originally? Okay. How many of you know you have a Southern accent? Right? If you don't, just go somewhere else and talk and they'll let you know. And how, as I've said before, they automatically deduct about a hundred points from your IQ the moment they hear your accent. I think it's funny that the the guy that won the Masters last week, right? His name, remember his name? Bubba. Isn't that great? Bubba Watson from Baghdad, Florida. All right? And and people automatically assume, I saw an article in the New York Times this week uh, that just said something about Bubba. People assume he's a dumb hick, and he's not. I mean, because the way he talks, 
And the fact that he bought the General Lee from Dukes of Hazard, which may be the most awesome thing in the history of the world. Well, now Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus. It immediately curtails anything that he was going to do to rise to power where he is. Here's the thing. There is absolutely no way you can follow Jesus without it interfering with your life. You are not going to be the most popular person in the world if you follow Jesus. You are not going to be, um, you're not going to be able to plan your life and, and then just add a little bit of Jesus to the side. Following Jesus will turn your world upside down. In fact, most believers are okay. They say, you know what, I'd be a follower of Jesus, really committed, if it would just make minor changes to my life. But that's not what Jesus says to Nicodemus, is it? Do you think being born again is a minor change? That's a major alteration. And the question that we have in the midst of all of this is, are you a fan of Jesus? Are you a follower? Are you someone that's enthusiastic about who He is? Are you someone that has committed your life and that your life has been turned upside down because of your desire to follow Him? We see Nicodemus one other time, as Joan mentioned. It's in John chapter 19. When Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, there was only one disciple that we know of at the foot of the cross, and that was John. So he would have been around the proceedings knowing what was going on. And as his body's taken down from the cross, we hear that there's Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower of Jesus, who has offered his tomb. And it says that Joseph of Arimathea goes to get the body, and it says, with him bringing the myrrh is Nicodemus. Here's what I think is interesting about the end of the story. We don't know his commitment level in John chapter 3. We know in John chapter 7 it's gone up a little bit. In John 19, he no longer even cares who knows he's associated with Jesus. At a time when the people closest to Jesus, most of them had fled. Tradition holds that Nicodemus became a pretty vocal supporter of Christ. And actually died for his faith in Jesus. The question, which is the same question we're going to have every week of this series, is this. Are you somebody who wants to follow Jesus as long as it requires minimal change and doesn't disrupt your life very much? Or are you someone is willing to let your life be turned upside down by Jesus. Are you a fan or are you a follower?